So before I before I begin here, I just wanted to thank the group uh, for all the love and support you gave my family the last two weeks. It was a pretty pretty hard time with my wife's father dying, um, but maybe not for the the reason you might think if you don't know us real well. But I just wanted to thank you for everything you did for us and uh, serving us in that way. I don't usually cry. Um, always try to hide my tears, but uh, one time I heard Sonny Bernie, if you know, if you know him, uh, he, he was up on stage and was talking about something emotional and he just broke down in tears and I was like, if Sonny can cry, I can cry. So, um, but thank you so much for, uh, for doing that for us and for being our not church community. So, okay. So as you can see, I, I put in the title, Ancient Mysteries and Modern with a question mark phenomena. And so um, the, my reason for that hopefully will become apparent as we as we continue uh, through this. But before we really dive into this, I want to share a little bit about my background and, and testimony because this is a, a pretty important part of, of uh, my story as a believer. And so just to give you a little history about that, I've always enjoyed learning about uh, history and uh, you know mysteries, things I don't understand. It's exciting to me. It's interesting to me, and I sometimes put a lot of time into that. And so, um, prior to the the COVID pandemic, I was I was in, into a lot of podcasts and not so much into my Bible. And what that really manifested into was I was starting to get sidetracked. I was starting to take some information I was seeing and seeing it through a secular lens rather than through a biblical lens and started to question a lot of things about, about the Bible and about the things that you know, a more orthodox Christian uh, worldview would, would call out or refute. And so going deeper down to that rabbit hole, I was starting to entertain some pretty wild ideas about the universe. Um, it's actually kind of embarrassing to, to share, but here we go. Um, one, one view I was actually considering is that there were multiple uh, planetary creations by God. You know, I never said, no, I don't believe in a God. I always have believed in, in the triune God, but was starting to entertain ideas that, you know, we have our Christian a creation story given to us in the Bible, but maybe there's like an Earth too you know, way in a different galaxy, and they have their own Bible and their own um, stories. You know, we have Adam, Moses, Abraham, Jesus, all these wonderful characters in the Bible to share God's redemptive plan. I started to um, entertain that there was more to it than that. Um, going further, I started to question the authenticity of Paul and some of his writings to, uh, to the uh, early church. And this all led to a confusion of, of why it's like if Paul says something different than what Old Testament is saying, how do we merge the two? And because at, for, at face value, they're very different, right? Um, how did God go from being lawful and just to then all I hear in church is grace? I didn't know what to do with that. Um, and so looking back, I basically had a bad view of God's redemptive plan. I didn't, I was not taught a good foundation of the Old Testament. Um, I grew up in, in a pretty good church, I think, and um, 
but never really understood the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, really, until I came here uh, four, three, three or four years ago. And so this, this group has also been um, really impactful in, in my walk as a, as a Christian and as a father and a husband. So um, for that, I just want to say thank you. Um, yeah, so this group is super amazing. Um, I know a lot of you travel a decent ways, and we have young kids, and I just want to encourage everyone that it is worth it, um, and I'm just one of, I'm sure, many testimonies uh, attributing to that. Um, but I always, uh, but it still felt like I needed answers to some of these things that we're going to get into tonight, even after coming here and God refreshing my, um, or refreshing might be the right, right word, re revised my theological uh, grasp. Um, I forgot one thing, so I'm going to back up just a little bit. It was challenged to me that I shouldn't question something I wasn't reading. And so um, I started to read the Bible more and then coming here, and God used all of that to give me a much more solid foundation on, on what the Bible actually says. So, um, Again, I felt like I needed some questions about the universe, things like extraterrestrial life, uh, Bigfoot, um, especially my personal favorite, UFOs, and, and even alien abductions. We're not going to go into all of that tonight, but we will touch on some of it um, tonight. So we're not going to talk about the pyramids tonight. Maybe we'll do a part two. That would be cool, though. Um, but first, I want to establish a few ground rules. First is that we must always maintain scripture as our guide and our guardrails. This stuff can be super deceptive. I just spent a couple minutes telling you how it started to deceive me. And by the grace of God, I did not abandon the faith. And, and I'm here today sharing with you all. Uh, but we shouldn't forget that Satan is in the business of deception. And he's been doing that since Genesis chapter 3. So I don't think he has stopped. And I think looking at our world today, it's pretty evident that that is the case. Um, also, I encourage you to do your own research. Don't just take my word for it. Um, I, I think I will lay down some foundational truths that we can all agree on, but I'm also going to share some things that I don't know if they're true or not. Uh, but I will let you know when those come up so everything is clear. Uh, but most importantly, keeping the Bible as our primary source as we build our worldview. Okay. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Um, I like this verse because um, it's succinct and it reassures us that we can trust the Bible because it stands forever and it doesn't fade. Another verse talking about uh, a similar uh, theme here. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Um, so if the Bible proves true. We can stand on that. We don't have to worry about, well, maybe this is true. Well, maybe that's true. No, if it's in the Bible, we can count on that and we can build, build off of that. Another verse I really like um, that talks about this is 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. 
but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if if the Bible is fully confirmed, we don't have to question it. We can pay attention to it. It'll benefit us. It'll shine a light and illuminate our path. It'll illuminate some of the stuff we don't we, we see in the world, but maybe don't understand. Um, we can use that as a, as a tool and as a guide in our life when we come across uh, some things that just don't make sense to our human eyes. Um, and it comes from God, the ultimate authority. We don't have to question whether um, you know the man author of of that particular scripture that we're working with or whatever the case may be. We don't have to question whether he was legitimate or not because God used men divinely to speak. Okay, so a few goals for tonight, just so we are all on the same page. Because I really, what I really don't want out of tonight is for me to say something and then you go to your friends and be like, oh, I heard, heard this guy say this and it's definitely true. I don't want that for some of this. Some of it I do, some of it I don't. Okay, so we're going to, we're going to look into some ancient mysteries um, and some strange modern occurrences. The fact is that there's some weird stuff out there, and um, including in the Bible, right? Like we have a talking donkey in the Bible. There's a virgin birth, which is pretty crazy. Pillars of fire, rivers of blood. I mean, we could go on and on about the weird stuff that if we saw today, we would probably lose our minds. And all that's in the Bible. So when I first started to prepare for this, I, I think I was sharing that with someone here before uh, we ate, but I was planning to do a lot more into this. But then I thought, this we're going to be here till midnight if I include all of this. So I tried to pare it down to what I felt made the most sense and was the most exciting for me to share, and that's what we have uh, tonight. Um, also, I'm going to offer a biblically sound worldview that can help explain some of these mysteries. I'm not going to promise that we can go into every single mystery that's out there and and uh, make sense of it because I can't. Um, but I'm going to share what some of the things I've kind of concluded um, based on based on the Bible and some other sources that we'll get into. Always remember to keep the Bible as guardrails. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, it needs to be our, our basis for for what we for what we're getting into. And if something doesn't line up with Scripture, I suggest that we go back and look at the evidence again and look at Scripture again because most, more than likely we're probably wrong, got something wrong, um, and let's try to stay on path and get that corrected sooner rather than later. Like I mentioned, I'm going to propose some of my own views that I've landed on. I don't know if all of them are correct. Probably not, but I'm going to share them anyway. And then hopefully by the end of this, I'll convince you I'm not nuts. But I'm not going to be offended if you if you think that. So that's okay. Uh, the first ancient mystery I want to share is megaliths. This is just one example. And a megalith is just a, a large stone put into a non-natural uh, formation. This one here, um, I forget where it is. I think Libya or Jordan. I can't remember. But this thing is massive. It weighs 1,650 tons. Like the technology and the cranes we have today can't even budge this thing. Nobody knows what it's for. No one knows why they're here or who built them. But it's there. Yes, sir. There is. Yep. They're enormous. Really, really large. Yeah. Clearly, clearly it's not a natural formation. So if it's not natural, it's got there's got to be a reason. Yeah. Yes. 
Yep. And some of these, I mean, may, that might be an explanation. Maybe it was an obelisk in ancient times that fell over somehow. Well, I, I don't know. That, like they were, they would carve the obelisks out and then they would have to lift them. So some of these were just discarded. That could be. Found out it had a right. And it very well could be. Um, which brings the question, how did they raise it up if we can't with giant cranes and machines lift it up? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, the point is, is that it's not natural, and I don't know what it. I don't know the answer. No one else does either. At least not uh, definitively. Here's another example of strange rock formations. I think this is in northern Europe somewhere. It kind of looks like Ireland, but I'm not quite sure. Um, and th there is a lot of examples of structures that look like this, of of uh, stones kind of put into a circular or a lot of times a rectangular or triangular pattern as well. Um, there's a lot of theories on this. I'm not going to go too deep into that tonight because I want to have time for everything else. Um, but that is one, another example of megaliths. Like I said, my personal favorite UFOs, I just think they're super interesting and very mysterious, and, but also kind of dangerous. So we need to be careful with this. But my main point uh, with this slide is these all, all these headlines were last month or at least this past year. Most of them were last month. Um, and um, you'd have to be living under some sort of rock to not see a lot of this popping up in the news here of the last few years. Um, but even I've been seeing a lot more in just the last few months and weeks. I don't know what it all means, but I feel like it's leading to something. I'll share a theory here later on. Um, some of you might remember the that middle headline where the UFO was shot over, shot down over Lake Huron. At the same time, the Chinese spy balloon was floating across um, the United States from coast to coast. I don't know if there's a connection. Maybe, maybe not. Um, and then I think just on Thursday, Thursday night, Friday morning, there was a a, a pretty um, big sighting of a UFO in Las Vegas that was all over the news um, here recently. And so. Um, I'm going to focus on, on UFOs tonight, like I said, because it's my favorite. But there's also a lot of other stuff that's interesting and mysterious, um, like sea monsters, sea monsters, uh, Bigfoot, Skinwalker Ranch, all this other stuff, uh, gray aliens. And if we want to talk more about that uh, on a personal level, I think, I think that'd be better than this kind of format. But I like talking about that stuff. I like learning about it and thinking, what, what does that mean? How can we as Christians explain that? Um, it's, it's interesting to me. Um, but one thing I really want to hit home tonight is that all these different things, some of them might be false, some of them might be true, but it proves that the world around us is more than just stuff. It's more than just the things we see, touch, and hear. You know, we're taught as kids in school that we have five senses. I think we have many more than that. I think we have a spiritual sense or two. Um, as spiritual beings created by God. So you might be sitting there thinking, okay, that sounds interesting, sounds cool, but why does it matter? Like we're here to study the Bible, right? I agree. Um, and so I'm going to share a couple of verses that might uh, that, that I want to use as uh, not proof, but in support of. I think it's important to look into some of the stuff and not just be like, oh, we're Christians, we don't believe that. Right, because I think that has its own danger along with it. So the first is Proverbs twenty-five, 
Verse 2 is the glory of God to conceal things with the glory of kings to search things out. Um, I think it's glorifying to God to take interest in the world he created. You know, that there's, there's a pendulum there, so we don't want to take it too far. Um, Charles John Ellicott wrote in uh, his commentary for English, writer, uh, English readers, For the more we search into the mysteries or nature, of nature or revelation, the more we discover depths of which we had no idea before. God has so ordered things that man may not presume to measure himself with his maker, but may recognize his own insignificance. And that's written in kind of an old English uh, dialect, if, if you will, I guess. And so I kind of summarized it that the more we learn about our world or about the nature around us, the more we come to grips with how small and finite we are and how big and infinite God is. And I think understanding that in itself brings glory to God as our creator. Again, we don't want to take it too far because we see in Ecclesiastes um, and, and Romans, kind of a, a little bit of a warning here that some things are just left a mystery, a mystery and that is okay. We're not designed or made to understand everything on, on this world. We have limits and we need to understand that and not forget that and not get caught up in the excitement and the um, energy of learning about and answering these mysteries um, on this world. There's definitely a balance there. And talking to myself more than anyone on that one, I think, but uh, wanted to communicate that. Okay, so why else does it matter? All right, we, we looked at some verses. Um, I think it's glorifying to God to take interest in our world. He commanded us to take care of it. He told us to have dominion. And we can't do that without at least having a basic understanding of, of the world we live in. And I think there's wisdom in understanding the world that, that we live in. Um, because if we, if we don't have a basic understanding of it, it'll be super easy to get sidetracked later on, as I shared in my, my testimony. If I had had, had a better uh, understanding of some of the more mysterious things of the world, maybe I wouldn't have started to question the Bible. And so I think it's good to have a great understanding of the Bible, but also a really good understanding of the world around us too. And lastly, and most importantly, I think we can use it as a witness uh, to, to those that don't know. I think people without um, the light and the love of Christ in their hearts are going to be more susceptible to these kinds of deceptions that we're going to look at. Um, whether they're real or not, a lot of these things appear real. And so if we can't explain that with our faith or biblical worldview, people are just going to like write us off, right? Because they're seeing this thing, and if we can't give an example of why that thing is there, or at least try to, I guess in my mind, it, it just allows an unsaved person to just be like, I can't explain that with the Bible, so I don't need it. I hope that makes sense. Um, let's see, I kind of got lost in my notes here. I think, I think we'll see, hopefully, um, that if we look close enough, we can see some reasonable explanations. I don't know if they're all going to be right, but uh, I think it's really important that we, we make an effort to explain the things that the world is seeing, because the world is going to be looking for an answer for some of this stuff. I'm convinced of that. So what, so, so what now, right? We've looked um, 
at a couple passages that I think supports that we that we should take an interest in God's creation, but not so much where we're um, letting it become an idol, I guess, in our in our lives. Uh, we've looked at a few of the reasons we should have an explanation for some of these strange things, but but now but what now, right? We could say, let's go just dive into all the forums and all the subreddits and all the podcasts and just learn about all this stuff, Bigfoot, alien sea monsters, etc., etc. But remember, we need to keep the Bible as our guardrail. So in order to do that, I think it's best that we start at the beginning because um, it's a very good place to start and and go from there. So in the beginning, right, we all know the story. God created the heavens and the earth. And just real quick on this, I, I have come to totally discount the idea that there are multiple created universes with um, beings with the likeness of God. And I think Genesis 1-1 proves that right from the bat, right off the bat by saying God created the heavens, plural, and the earth, singular. I think this is where he put his image bearers. Nowhere else. Just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and he saw that it was good, right? There's seven times in, in Genesis chapter 1 where it says God saw it, it was good, or God saw it was very good, right? So we started off perfect, right? Then the fall. Uh, so Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve sinned, broke that perfection. The curse and sin entered the world. Um, from the serpent's deception, like I said, Satan's been doing this since Genesis chapter 3. He's very, very good at it, and we need to remember that and acknowledge that. Um, I thought it was interesting in this picture. You always see in these art art drawings or uh, picture Bibles that the fruit of the knowledge, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is always an apple. I thought that was interesting. I don't know why. So now we come to Genesis chapter 6, and this is the primary passage that we're going to be in today, uh, verses 1 through 7, actually. So I just want to read this through once, and then we'll continue. Uh, this is chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in him forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be at one hundred and twenty years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were mighty men of, who, who were of old, the men of renown. Continuing on in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Okay, so that was only seven verses, but we go from man was multiplying the earth, you know, kind of, uh, that's what God wanted um, man to do initially. That was the design, man, woman, multiply, um, and animals and, and stuff too. That was, that's what they were, that's what's their purpose, was to multiply and bring glory to God. But we go from that to cue up the flood, right? Send send the rain, open up the, the floodgates, and, and we're going to flood the earth and wipe it all out within seven verses, right? So that, that to me, that's pretty crazy. Um, and for as impactful as this passage is, there is frustratingly little detail 
in Genesis uh, for this. Um, but I think we can start to put the pieces together anyway, even without having excess detail. Um, so I want to put together a few questions that we can ask ourselves as we move through this passage in kind of a step-by-step -step process. Who are the sons of God? Right, That's a pretty big uh, question that needs answering for this passage of Genesis 6, verses 1 through 7. Also, who are the Nephilim? Uh, what did they do? What's going on? What's happening in this passage? And also, what was the impact? Obviously, this passage is in here for a reason, and I don't think anything is in the Bible for not a reason. Um, and so, we need to figure that out. So, there are two main views on this passage, right? Or two explanations. The first is more of a natural view um, and is also titled the Sethite view because the view here is that the sons of God listed in Genesis 6 are descendants of Seth. Um, this view is not only kind of boring, but it doesn't, it doesn't even attempt to answer the question of who the Nephilim are. Um, so some Christians do hold this view, and I think that's okay. I just don't think it's correct. The view I think is correct is more of a supernatural view that the sons of God listed in Genesis 6, verse 1 or 2, are angels, fallen angels. Um, and they, they were on the earth to watch and protect mankind. They saw that women were beautiful and decided to uh, abandon their place of authority that God had given them as created angels and chose to throw that away for their um, self selfish desires, really. So why can we be confident in this? Um, Job 1.6 and 2.1 also mentioned sons of God and is definitely talking about angels in, in those two verses. Um, this is when uh, Satan, along with sons of God, listed in Job, and I don't, some translations might get that a little bit differently. It's when they were presenting themselves to the Lord, I think. Um, yeah, it's pretty early on in, in Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Also, Jude, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter all have parallels to angels, disobedience, and or rebellion. Um and also sexual sin. So there's a strong parallel in, in those three um, passages. And we're going to look at the Jude one right now. So Jude specifically references angels abandoning their place of authority and engaging in sexual sin. The supernatural view of Genesis 6 seems to be the correct view and understanding of Genesis 6, um, largely because of this passage, because there is no other example or explanation for what Jude is talking about other than Genesis 6 verses 1 through 7. Um, so that to me is a pretty strong indication that they they are angels. Otherwise, what is Jude talking about or why is he, why is it included in, in our divinely given uh, Bible? Uh, let's see. Also, Second Temple Jews believe there was a strong connection between evil, primarily sexual sin, and the angelic sons of God, if you look at um, things like the Talmud and things like that. And I'm not going to go into any of that today, but they did have a strong uh, belief system that 
there was uh, fallen sons of God that that uh, engage in sexual sin. And actually, um, I'm not going to go into this book, but Michael Heiser wrote a book that I just finished listening to a few weeks ago called Reversing Herman. And um, in that, the, in the story of the fallen angels coming down, they came down from heaven onto Mount Hermon, which is in like the northern part of, of Israel. And all of the areas and tribes around that area were known to the Israelites to be extremely pagan and sinful um, and having um, a lot of sexual uh, sins within them. So the Israelites looked on them with negativity because of that. Like that was their belief. This also could explain why um, Paul references because of the angels in um, is it First Corinthians, I think, talking about head covering for women. He said it's because of the angels. I don't know. That's just one thing I thought of in, in researching all of this. I don't know why else he would care about what the angels thought. Um, but his idea here is that the, the woman in in church um, or in corporate worship should wear a head covering as a symbol of authority to her husband or to God. Um, and what's that? Submission. And, and sub submission. Yes. Thank you for that correction. Uh, as a sign of submission to the authority given to her by God, either her husband or God himself. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Maybe he thought if it happened once, it can maybe happen again. So we should try to avoid that. I don't know. Okay, so now I want to go back to Genesis 6 here um, and, and point out a few things. So we see that the, the angels took, took daughters and made them wives, right? Resulting in Nephilim, seemingly, at least in, in this passage. There's also this mention of his days shall be 120 days, right? What does that mean? There is a few different theories on this. Um, and I'll share the three primary theories that people have come to believe on this. The first is that it was 120 years from this date, or whatever this transgression occurred, 120 years until the death of Adam. Maybe. I don't know. I think that one's hard to prove. Um, it also, there's a theory out there that this was signifying shorter lifespans from there on out in history. And if you look at a, a biblical timeline of how long people lived it does get a lot shorter after the flood but i think there's also something to be said about the environment of the earth was much different brian has a lot of uh teachings on that if you're curious on that um and then the third theory is that it was 120 years until the flood would actually come i think that makes the most sense just given the context of of the passage right we we read about this transgression his days will be 120 years. Then it talks about the Nephilim. It talks about um, in verses 5 and 7. I don't have that up here. But it talks about um, the how that led to sin. right? And so it would make sense. And then the sin was answered to by God with the flood. So that kind of seems to make more sense going chronologically. Um, since the flood happened in Genesis chapter 7, which is directly after chapter 6, obviously. So that seems to be the most likely to me. Um, but for sure, something major was happening here, right? For God to decide to bring a flood wasn't because he 
because it was minor, right? This was a major thing that needed major recourse. Um, so strong of recourse that God put a rainbow in the sky saying, I'm not doing everything, anything that significant or that on a large scale ever again. So, what was going on that was so, so major is, is another question we should answer. Um, then it also talks about in verse 4, the Nephilim were mighty men of renown. Um, so there's a lot here. But at the same time, like I said earlier, there's not a ton of detail. We have to kind of use our imaginations to fill in some gaps. And so in order to help us fill in some gaps, we're going to look at the book of Enoch today. Um, we've looked at the book of Enoch a few times before at this study. Brian's talked about it. And I want to reiterate that I'm not throwing this into canonical scripture. Um, but I think it's safe to use in the supplement on top of Scripture or kind of interject in with, with Scripture um, because I think we can trust it. But why? So Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter of Jude. Uh, so verse 14 to 15, I think it is, he quotes directly Enoch chapter 2. So I think that's one, one uh, reason we can trust the, the book of Enoch is because one of the divine uh, authors of the Bible seem to trust it enough to, to throw in there. Uh, biblical authors held it in high regard. So did Jewish scholars and believers. Also, it was found with uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think that was 1970-something. Um, pages of the Book of Enoch written in Aramaic were found along, along with uh, parchments of Old Testament and New, New Testament writings. Also, Enoch was one of two people, right, that didn't die a physical death. And I feel like that's got to count for something. I don't know. So how does Enoch, Enoch's writings fit into this, right? Okay, so we see in chapter 7 of Enoch, and if you've not read the book of Enoch, I really encourage you to do so. It is a really interesting read. Um, if you haven't, you should. It's, it's pretty fun. So Enoch chapter 7, it happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born to them, elegant and beautiful. And when the angels, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, come, let us select ourselves wives from the progeny of men and let us beget children. Okay, so right away, two verses in, sounds basically identical to Genesis chapter 6. Um, a little bit later in chapter 7, we start to see a little more detail being, being brought to this story. Um, Again, I think it's safe to, to do this because it's saying like the overall story of Genesis 6 that's being talked about here in, in Enoch 7 is the same. So um, I think it's safe to, to, to use this to help us understand uh, Scripture. Then they took wives, each choosing for himself, whom they began to approach and with whom they cohabitated, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing of roots and trees. And the women conceiving brought forth giants whose stature was each 300 cubits. These devoured all which the labor of men had produced until it became impossible to feed them. Okay, so the sons of God, also called watchers in the book of Enoch, um, taught mankind and, and women forbidden knowledge, Enoch calls it, uh, with the intention, intention of corrupting God's creation, right? Like that's, that's their goal. That's Satan's goal. That's their goal. Um, other knowledge listed later on in Enoch, I'm not going to just print the whole book of Enoch onto the, the screen here, so I'll just run through them real quick. Uh, but 
other stuff that they taught was weapons, the making of mirrors, bracelets and ornaments, the use of paint, the beautifying of eyes, the use of stones, all sorts of dyes, sorcery, as mentioned in chapter uh, verse 10, the observations of stars, signs in astronomy, and the motion of the moon, right? So all of this stuff that presumably man didn't really know, or at least not onto this scale, right? Because you can't be taught something if you already know it. Um, all this knowledge was given to men and were encouraged to use it to sin, right? Our man's natural uh, bent, if you will, is to be selfish, to only worry about us. And so we're going to use whatever means we have necessary when we're apart from Christ and apart from the word of God. We're going to use that to our benefit and, and sin against those around us. That's just a pretty standard thing about humanity. Um, there's a standing joke in our house that when we don't understand something, we just say, Nephilim, right? Had to be the Nephilim. Like, how, how, does, uh, how did someone for, uh, figure out that you can ferment dough and get sourdough, right? Uh, but that's, but we see here that's actually incorrect, so we need to change that, babe. We need to say it was the watchers, right? The watchers are the ones that taught. The Nephilim were the offspring of, of the watchers. Um, and some of these things, like like making and utilizing the things that God gave us in creation, like that's not inherently a bad thing, um, because sin cannot create; it only corrupts, right? And so, the the idea of building and the idea of utilizing plants and roots and looking at the stars that God created, like that's not a bad thing, but it can be used in a bad way, you know, just like. People kill people. Guns don't kill people. Like it's the same same idea here. Except sorcery and magic. I don't want to go too far here. We do have a commandment in Leviticus to not engage in such things, right? But it is still part of our it's still part of our world, right? Um, if sin cannot create, the devil can't create. He can only use what he was given by God. Then magic is a thing that. That was created by God. Um, but he has commanded us to not engage in it and not use it. And we should obey that. We don't have to understand why. We just need to obey it anyway. Because um, even Satan and fallen angels were created by God. And we need to acknowledge that and remember that. So, giants, right? Giants were 300 cubits. Does anybody know how, how long a cubit is? About 18 inches. Yeah. So that is a very tall person. Yeah. So I think, yeah, 450 to 500 feet tall. That is insane. You think about, like, you know, growing up, we'd go through the Bible, you know, giants, uh, you know, Goliath was a giant. He was, like, 8 to 10 feet tall. That's nothing compared to these guys. Um, yeah, yeah, so the, the airplanes, or the, the UFOs didn't hit them, yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Get back on track here. All right. Also in Enoch chapter 9, it says, Then Michael and Gabriel and Raphael, Suriel and Uriel looked down from heaven and saw the quantity of blood which was shed on earth and all the iniquity which was done upon it and said to one another, It is the voice of their cries. The earth deprived of her children has cried even to the gate of heaven. 
but I'm not going to pretend to understand everything that Enoch wrote because he wrote some pretty confusing things, um, even though they're interesting. But to me, this says that the result of the watcher or the sons of God's transgressions that resulted in giants and all of this uh, new technology and teachings to mankind resulted in intense uh, sin and bloodshed on the world, ultimately resulting um, in the flood. Um, and the cry was so great, the angels started to take notice, and then they recognized that, that like verse 2, the earth deprived of her children has cried even to the gate of heaven. So this was not, like I said earlier, this what was going on here was majorly, majorly wrong um, and, and needed a flood level thing to, to um, rectify the problem. So later on in the book of Enoch, again, I'm not going to have it all here because there is a lot, but God hears their cries and assigns the angels, these, these archangels that are listed, to go bind the watchers, quote, hand and foot, and cast them into darkness and opening the desert, which is in Dudael. I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, but basically, he gives each of the archangels a, um, a task, and it says to go find these fallen angel watcher sons of God guys on earth and bind them in darkness. So I don't know exactly what that means. Maybe they're, they're all like, physically bound somewhere on the earth. I don't know. Maybe it's another spiritual dimension again. I don't know. But they're def they were definitely the, the angels, the servants of God, Michael, Gabriel, etc. They were given the task of going and finding these guys and put a stop to this. Um, I'm going to skip uh, some more details in Enoch for the sake of time. Uh, but again, you should read it because it's highly interesting. Um, and... Think you'd enjoy. Enoch had some pretty incredible experiences wandering the earth. Uh, a large, a large part of the book is him just wandering around, asking questions, and getting answers from angels. Like, I don't know what would be a cooler experience than that. Um, he also, I mentioned the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil having apples on it. He actually writes about the fruit of the tree being uh, resembling grapes. So he, he, he notes that on one of his journeys on the earth. Yeah, I don't know if he was just like wandering around asking questions left and right and just being answered by angels. I don't know. That's how it's written. I don't know exactly how it took place. Um, someone recently asked me if I could be any, or if I could talk to any Bible character, but um, if I had the choice to talk to any Bible character, who would it be with the exception of Jesus? And my answer is Enoch, and it's not even close. Definitely would be Enoch. Enoch chapter 10, um, again we see the um, that the sin that came about with the transgression of the watchers and the Nephilim and mankind learning all this stuff and engaging in sin. Uh, this is God talking to, um, to the angels, I believe. For all the earth shall perish, the waters of a deluge will, shall come over the whole earth, and all things which are in it shall be destroyed. Um, so again, the transgression was so bad that it required a flood to, to fix. Um, and then later on in Enoch chapter 16, it says that when a giant, or Nephilim in this case, dies, their spirit departs from their body, right? Because they, they are the product of an unholy union of an angelic being, being and a mortal woman which results in a 
hybrid, if you will, um, the, the, the Nephilim or giants, whatever you want to call them. So when they die, their spirits depart from the body. The body is mortal, so it dies. The flood, flood killed the, the giant bodies. But the spirits are still, we're still there. Um, and the, the word for uh, that in the book of Enoch in the original translation is Rephaim, which is the same word in the Bible um, used for demons. Um, one strong theory, one I, I would believe, is that the demons that we see and engage in here on earth are are still these uh, giant spirits, Nephilim spirits. The, their, their bodies were wiped out in the flood. Their spirits are still here to torment uh, God's creation. Okay. That's a great question. Well, some giants have been starting to be dug up. There's actually some in North America. Yeah, not 400 feet tall, but yeah. Yeah, we can get real tinfoil hatty here for a minute if yeah. everyone wants to. Um, but there, there is a theory that um, some of the Nephilim survived the flood, and they use underground military bunkers to, to do it, and that's more of a hollow earth theory. I'm not saying that's the case. Not going to go there. Yeah. So we'll have to, yeah, we'll have to dive into that during Tab Tabernacles because that is interesting, although a little out there for even for me. Anyway, the, the Lord speaks. He says, "This is bad. I'm going to wipe it all out with the flood." Okay, so let's let's pause here and do a little bit of review, right? Sons of God, uh, Book of Enoch tells us that they are the watchers, fallen angels, or angels that at least gave up their uh, angelic authority. Um, to give in to their lust. They taught knowledge to humans, which resulted in the giants that devoured earth and men. Um, and sin had to sin had to be cleansed from, from the earth. This was so bad that God sought fit to send a flood to wipe it all out. Um, and then also, there, I think it's in Genesis 6, it says that the Nephilim, um, were there in those days and also after. Um, there's two primary theories on this. Um, I was talking to a few of the guys here earlier today about this, but one theory um, is that Ham's wife was a descendant of, of giants somewhere along the line. So her DNA had a fragment of, of this uh, Nephilim DNA, and that's how we got Nephilim after the flood, post-flood. Um, Another theory is like the military bunker theory that I mentioned earlier, which is, again, a little out there for me, but a little fascinating. Um, a third theory is that there was a second or a, an additional instance of angels leaving heaven and coming down and having this again, um, the same kind of deal on a smaller scale. I don't know what's, what's true. The fact is the Bible says they were there in those days and also after the explanation. I don't, I don't know. Um, Okay, so we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Um, we've looked at the biblical account of this in the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 6. We've also filled in some of the gaps using the book of Enoch. Um, so now we, I think we have a, a decent foundation laid that we can start talking about um, some of this other stuff. And I want to highlight here that not everything I say here is true. In fact, I don't even know if I believe all of it. I just think it's somewhat compelling. Um, and at the very least is an example of weird stuff out there that seems plausible, at least on face value. So here we go.
side one more. Megalis, okay? I think it's pretty obvious that they're works of giants. If they were for obelisks, as Noah was saying earlier, um, I think probably used for Satan worship. That's who, that's who they were in allegiance with once they abandoned their place of authority. And the giants were the only ones big enough to lift those giant stones. So that's my take on that. I'm not going to go into super uh, a lot of detail on here because I want to leave time for UFOs. Um, but I think I think these had to be the work of giants for what purposes? I don't know. Um, the what's that? Build a chair. Oh yeah, <laughs> they were very large. Um, there's also theories out there that the the ones in circles that I showed earlier were were used for interdimensional portals, which I find kind of interesting, but not all that compelling. Um, but I'm not gonna totally discount it. Yeah. Some people think about that with the pyramids too. Okay, so UFOs. Here we are. Um, what are they, right? So UFO, the definition here is an unidentified flying object, which is pretty broad. It could be kind of anything. It just has to be flying in the air. It's got to be a thing, and it's got to be something that we don't know what it is, right? And that makes it a UFO. It's also a UAP, which is kind of a newer uh, term here, um, unidentified aerial phenomenon. This was actually changed uh, last year to unidentified anomalous phenomena, which I'm not sure why the Department of Defense decided to change that, but they did. Um, so that those are our definitions. So the, the difference here is one is referring to a physical object, right? UFO is talking about an object. Uh, a UAP is more talking about um, just weird stuff in the sky, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be an object. It opens itself to include weather patterns or light refractions or other kind of scientific uh, natural occurrences that could appear as something. Um, but uh, I like the UFO definition because I like to think that they're real. Okay, so here's a graph from the National UFO Reporting Center because obviously that should be a thing that that uh, is tracking all of this. But I've... <laughs> um, I thought it was interesting. I don't know how well you can read that, but it's quite a few. Um, or earlier, I showed a bunch of headlines, right? So, like, we know this is a this is a thing. It's happening. We don't know what it is. We don't know why, um, and we don't know who's behind it all. But there's definitely an increase in mainstream media reporting, um, also uh, government disclosure documents and, and everything like that happening with this. So I think we should take note. Um, but I thought it was interesting. You see this giant spike here in the late 90s and 2000s, right? Um, because over here, way over there in the 40s is the Roswell incident. And on our trip, we were not that all, all that far from Roswell. I really wanted to go to the museum there, but it just didn't work out with our uh, time that we were going to be driving through that, and we wanted to get home really bad. So we didn't do that. Um, but it just shows all the different uh, sightings and stuff that you probably have heard of um, along with sci-fi movies. I, so I, I thought it was an interesting the, graph. The spike uh, 95 was for the first commercial detail video. Yeah. Right, and I was going to mention, what's that, Gibbs? The men in black thing. Uh-huh. Yep. I mean, it was white, but... Yeah, yep. 
so we hit this this point in the mid 90s we start to get some new technology we start to get some different entertainment and poof that spike just goes to the sky i don't think that's a coincidence oh i didn't even try actually nah just that good um I don't think it's a coincidence that 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 is the case. I think I think the powers that be, whoever that is, wants the wants people to be a little more uh, paying more attention to, to this kind of thing. Again, I don't know why. I'll give a theory here in a little bit, but um, I don't have a concrete answer to to explain that. I just think it's interesting that when we started to get more technology, we start seeing more of them. Maybe that. Uh, lends itself to the idea that this has always been happening um, and not just more in the last 50, 60 years. I don't think this is something that's just been here in the recent 50 years, and here's why. There are lots of examples of ancient art um, depicting UFOs. So here's one from 1350. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's called the Crucifixion. Uh, depicts these weird, strange humanoid beings um, in these circular shapes that seem to have uh, a propulsion or momentum at least, or a flying shape. And then, so the, the picture is the bottom one, and this isn't a great picture, I should have found a better one. And then the, the top part is, is kind of keyed in onto the two objects. So you can kind of see one on the left, one on the right of the lower part. And so, I don't really know what to do with this. I just wanted to share it. Here's here's another one. Um, this is this painting was from uh, 1710. It's called the Baptism of Christ, and you can see a, a saucer-like object uh, emitting rays of light or or something on Jesus as he's being baptized. Um, these are just a couple examples, but there are a lot more. If you want, just do a, a DuckDuckGo search. Don't do a Google search for reasons, but you'll you'll find it on on the internet if you want to look at some of that. Um, so you can see how taking a biblical truth, like Jesus was baptized, the Bible says that, he was crucified, the Bible says that, and then mixing in some of this weird technology or, or UFO type of thing into it can start to be a little deceiving for people. It was for me, um, and I'm sure it is for other people. And it plays right into the hand of the human brain wanting to solve the mystery or learn more about this thing we don't, we don't understand. Um, Part of our design is to explore, discover, and dominate the world. That's how God created us. This is a also a weird, just a weird drawing, honestly. Uh, the estimated date is 1550 BC, um, and this is a Native American uh, drawing on a rock, on a rock face. And these beings look somewhat alien. Uh, and so there's also a lot. Of examples of this kind of thing too in hieroglyphs um, I think Egyptians wrote some um, but there's a lot in native in uh, North America as well and also Central America with the Incas and the Mayans so I don't know if there's a coincidence there or not okay military interaction this is by far my favorite part of this um, this is commander David Fravor he um, is famous for being one of the pilots that encountered um, a UFO. It has been called the Tic Tac because it looked like Tic Tac candy. That's the only reason it's called that is because it looks like a Tic Tac candy. Uh, in 2004, he was stationed on the U.S. Nimitz aircraft carrier off the coast of Southern California. 
Um, he is essentially like a, a modern-day maverick. He was uh, the top of his class at Top Gun uh, Air Force School, highly respected in his field. Um, if you listen to his interviews, he's a super down-to-earth, reasonable guy. Um, he has absolutely no reason to lie or fudge the truth. In every interview I've seen, he says the exact same story. So I believe he saw something. Um, he won't He won't really uh, go into what he thinks it was. He just gives his story of what he saw and experienced that day. So on November 14th of 2004, um, his um, fighter plane, he had a co-pilot manning the, the camera gun thing, and then there was another, there was two planes. So four pilots, two, two planes. They were on a training mission, uh, or exercise mission, and then while they were in flight, uh, the USS Princeton, which was, um, I think, 100 miles up the coast, from them spotted something weird on radar. So they, these two were like, the, they were already in the air so they could get there the fastest. So they are redirected to, to this, um, to this weird blip on radar. So when they got there, they started circling the, the GPS coordinates of where this thing was. And as they're circling, they're, they're looking for it. And they're, at first they're looking in the sky, but they don't see anything. So they look down and they see this tic-tac-like object on the, just, up, just above the surface of the water, and this is in the uh, Pacific Ocean, off of California. And they see the this object kind of like bouncing around, almost like if you put a ping, uh, ping pong ball in a box and shook the box, that's kind of how it just erratically moving, but not changing any elevation, just straight. Um, as they're, they're circling, he decides to get a closer look because um, he couldn't see well enough from up top. So they're still circling, but he gets lower. An elevation and as he gets a little bit closer um, the object starts to rise off the water and as it does that he he reports that he saw what it looked like something was also underneath the water um, he refers to it similarly like if you're at a lake or something in a boat and you see kind of the water kind of breaking like like there's a rock just beneath the surface the water looks a little bit different that's kind of how he explains it um, and so as he gets even closer still, the object immediately goes up in the air and then within seconds is just gone. It doesn't just disappear. He said it accelerated faster than anything he's ever, ever seen. Um, and so they're on the, on the calm. They're trying to like figure out what was that? Did you see that? That kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they get uh, a report from the guys back at the, at the ship and they say we we found it again, and he, they say they say, sir, you're not going to believe this, but it's at your cap point. And if you know anything about um, Air Force fighters or aviation, the cap point is like your your it's like your rendezvous point almost for for planes. It's like your target flight pattern um, for the end of your flight before you return back to your ship. And that thing was right at the end. How it knew to go there, maybe random, I don't know, um, but that's what happened. Um, later analysis of the two radar points from when they lost it to when they saw it again, that object would have had to travel tens of thousands of miles per hour faster than anything that we can we can do um, and defies the, what we know of the laws of physics. So we do not have the technology to explain that, uh, at least not in the public public sphere. Okay, so we're gonna shift gears again to go ahead. No, it's not. It is not. 
And I don't even believe we have ships that could withstand that kind of uh, air resistance. Okay, so we're going to shift from the military. Of an exa one example, there's plenty uh, of a military experience with with a UFO. We're going to shift more to more of a scientific or technology possible explanation. Um, some of you might uh, recognize him. His name is Bob Lazar. He was famous for um, working at a top secret government facility north of Area 51. Area 51 kind of gets all of the news and attention, um, but according to him, the real work took place at this other facility called S4. Um, and according to him, he, the government was working on reverse engineering a handful of UFO spacecraft that um, he doesn't know how they got them. They wouldn't tell him. But basically his job was to reverse engineer this thing, even though they would only give him bits and pieces of information. Um, some of Bob, Bob Lazar's story has been debunked, uh, mostly in, in terms of his education and career. Um, he claims to be uh, an MIT graduate and then also a, a physicist um, for a couple different private companies before going to this S4 facility, but that has, nobody can prove that anymore. It's kind of just his word. There's no proof at these institutions or at these companies that he ever worked there. So I don't know if if the government just scrubbed it or if he's totally making it up. I don't know. But I think his story is really extremely interesting. Um, so we're going to talk about it. So his story, like I said, worked at a facility north of Area 51 in Nevada called S4. He worked there as a physicist and he was in charge of reverse engineering an alien spacecraft. That's what That's what he calls it. Um, according to him, he was never allowed to know more than his superiors would allow him to know. Everything was super compartmentalized and secret. And if, he, and if you ever asked too many questions, you were either not seen again or you removed that, that project onto another one. This is all according to him. He claims that he worked on the propulsion systems for these crafts and that there was a working prototype that was periodically tested in the deserts of Nevada. Uh, Lazar reports that the science and technology that allowed the crafts like this to move like they do was uh, a, I guess I'll call it a theory, the theory of gravitational propulsion. Um, and that is how a craft could go thousands of miles an hour and not be ripped apart. It basically it could create its own gravity field to keep it all centralized. Something we definitely cannot do today. This was an original sketch by Bob Lazar. So a little more background on him. I didn't have it written down. I'm just going off memory here. When he started to figure out exactly what these were, he invited some of his friends to go out into the desert and see this thing fly because he, he knew when it was going to be tested. And um, like any of us, if we're involved with something like this, that's super exciting, right? Like we do not have the technology to do this. And he was on the cutting edge of that. Why wouldn't you want to show that? Uh, to your friends. So he, he brought some friends out there. Um, they, they see this thing. He goes back home. He gets called into the office the next day, kind of gets reprimanded a little bit. Um, they end up tapping his home phone and start to uh, gaslight him and his wife. There's a lot of story history there, but eventually they split. Um, I think she ended up having an affair uh, with some other guy. And, and so um, he ends up losing 
his job here and then is made out to be uh, a crazy person. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I just find what he has to say uh, interesting. And it's a possible, like I said, possible explanation for at least some of these. I'm not going to say that they are all uh, this, but I feel like it'd be hard to make up um, some of this. And I'll, I'll go into some of that here. So his, his explanation for gravitational propulsion is that it was threefold. You see here there's gravity and then a reactor and then a waveguide. Um, he actually got to go in one of these crafts one time and saw all these parts of the ship. He explains that there was um, the, the reactor which would generate the gravity and then the, uh, there was gravity emitters. I think there was three, three or four of them on the hold of the ship that could direct and intense, control the intensity of the gravity and that's how the ship would uh, propel through time and space. Um, he explains it like having a mattress, right? And then you put a bowling ball on the mattress and it like creates, creates a, a hole that everything gets drawn into, right? But if you take your fist and you press down into the mattress right next to the bowling ball, what happens to it? It's gonna roll right to that, that lower area because that's just naturally where it wants to go. So he explains that creating a gravity field um, in front of a ship will kind of like suck in the ship to that new place in time. And by controlling the direction and the intensity of it, you can control how it flies and how fast. That's the part that's kind of interesting to me. Again, I don't know if that's all true because um, I don't have any more proof other than this. Um, the fuel that was used in the reactor, he denotes as being an unknown element at the time. Um, he called it element 115 because at the time there were only 114 elements on the periodic table. Um, years later, after he was fired, I think it was a Russian lab, they actually uh, proved that they could, they could make this, this new element. I can't remember the name of the element, but um, they can make it for like half a second before it decays. So um, I don't know if that makes his story more compelling or less compelling, but that's, that's a fact of, of element 115. Here's another sketch um, of, of the craft here. You can see two little chairs and a door and then a little bit more of, according to him, the technology that, that maybe propelled these crafts through, through space. Uh, according to him, there was nine uh, of these crafts in the, at the S4 facility. He only got to go into one, maybe two of them, if I remember correctly. Um, but he, he remembers an eerie feeling being inside the ship and that there were no no seams in the metal it's like it wasn't made out of panels even though this drawing kind of has that but the whole thing was solid almost like it was carved or like poured um, and no rivets no screws no bolts all just solid super smooth um, like I said like it had been poured or even melted away um, he that's part of his uh, story. He also remembers noticing that uh, the chairs in the craft were super small, like just for the size of like a four or five year old kid. Nothing bigger than that. Um, yeah, he remembers feeling very uneasy and eerie just being inside and seeing this thing that obviously in, in his to his account was not created by humans. So Take that for what you will. Um, 
how should I know? I'm not a scientist. Um, <laughs> all jokes aside, I want to pause here and reiterate, I don't know how any of this works. This is just one potential explanation on how these things fly through the sky um, and could, could explain that. But again, I don't know. What I do know is we live in a world that is created by an infinite God and that we, and even in our modern society with all this technology and innovation, we haven't even scratched the surface of what is possible um, in our natural material world that God put us in. What I also know is what we looked at earlier is that the watchers, they came to earth and they knew things we didn't. Um, and if that was true then, why wouldn't that be true now? The watchers of Genesis 6 are bound until the final day of judgment, but I think it's very plausible that there could be others, uh, other fallen angels or uh, demonic spirits, the, the Rephaim, that um, have some type of interaction still with the material world or that can um, kind of guide humans with ill intentions into some of the science uh, and technology to uh, wreak havoc on the rest of the world. Um, let's see. So, I don't think that the uh, that kind of science and technology is the only explanation, um, just one of them. Another one I think that um, is is very strong, and I do think that it has a place, um, is, is in the New Age. Um, and this would be more along the, these things are orbs of light, that kind of thing, that uh, have a more of a spiritual sense to them rather than a physical, technological sense to them. This guy's name is Dr. Stephen Greer. He founded the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence in 1990 to basically for the purpose of creating a diplomatic uh, contact for extraterrestrial life. He is convinced that there is life outside of Earth and um, that it is the next part of evolution of humanity to make connections with them to learn more about ourselves and uh, technology and science. Very new agey type thinking. Transhumanism is also in his uh, background. So this group defined uh, close encounters of the fifth kind as being a human initiated contact to UFOs or extraterrestrial life. And how they do this is super creepy. Um, part of their protocol is corporate meditation. So he will take groups out into a mountain range, um, mostly northern Colorado, uh, but also into Wyoming, Montana, and other places um, in California as well, I believe. And they will have 20 to 30 people that go up on these excursions or trips or whatever you want to call them. And they will wait until it gets dark. And then they'll get into a circle and they will all meditate together. And then at some point, they have it on video, so it, it happens. Um, at some point, there are these orbs that are really faint in the sky that keep coming closer and closer and closer. The people on on the video that's out there will they you can hear them talking and how they feel so peaceful and so um, understood and so happy and warm. And then, um, absolutely, it is. Um, so it's a stark contrast to the the angel interactions we see in the Bible, where even when the angels go to like, Joseph and Mary and, and other characters in the Bible, they're immediately frightened, right? These are not 
things that we're used to seeing. And if we ever see an angel or uh, a demon in its natural form, I think it would be really scary. Um, and the fact that they feel the polar opposite just screams deception to me. Um, not even mentioning the whole meditation bit. So, so a final conclusion on the UFO bit so we can uh, wrap this up. Again, a lot of this speculation, I don't know uh, all the ins and outs. I just know what I've come across and wanted to share some of these things with you guys um, because it's interesting and I think it's the more that we can be aware of, the more we have in our um, in our mind to be able to explain these things when we come across them. And I think it's better to understand it with a, a biblical foundation and worldview rather than just out there in the world where, where we are subject to deception ourselves. Um, I think that no matter if it's light orbs or illusions or demonic activity or actual technology being used, in such a way to deceive everyone. I, d I don't know, but I do think that there is a strong um, path here, if you will, towards some type of staging of an alien invasion or um, some type of UFO technology that will be... Um, It will be shared to us as people or as nations, as citizens, as being a huge existential threat to our well-being and that we need to submit to them or submit to a one-world government um, to, you know, to as one more step towards the, the beast and prophet and dragon of Revelation. That's my personal theory. Um, we don't have to get into the whole pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill eschatology. But that seems to be a, a a really compelling reason for this. If you just look at the increase in um, news events, government agencies putting publicly um, forming committees to research this and to track this and to reach out to to these entities, that's my personal opinion. Is that this is all a um, a strategy to deceive? the whole world. And what better way to make everyone just abandon their religions that they've been following for hundreds of years than to bring in something apparently brand new and saying we all have to either surrender to them and, and worship them, maybe even essentially, or we have to unite together as a one world uh, religion to, to, to fight these things off or we're all going to be wiped out. That's my personal theory. Um, 2 Thessalonians talks about a great falling away um, in conjunction with the revealing of the man of sin. So I think that's another uh, proponent of, of that theory. Um, but again, I don't know. Uh, like Brian always says and advises, and I think it's right to, to not go all in on that kind of thing, but just store in the back of our heads, being mindful, being watchful of, of the world around us. So um, at the risk of sounding repetitive here, how should we respond to this? I, I think that our first response should should be questions like, why is this happening? Is there, um, or we should have a healthy curiosity of these things, trying to explain it with a biblical worldview, but definitely not go all in and and to not, um, to not let it 
consume us. Another question is, has this happened before? Right? Is there a biblical example or a pattern of this? Does this line up with Scripture at all? How can we kind of start to put these pieces together um, in a way that makes sense? But also with a confidence and hope and not a, a spirit of fear. Right? Romans says that we're not given a spirit of fear. The battle is the Lord's. He's already uh, won the, the battle for us. We don't have to be afraid of things that we don't understand. Um, but I also don't want it to go, the pendulum to swing so far where we just immediately discount it, right? I don't think we should just immediately say, I don't understand that, that's impossible. Or we're Christians, we don't believe that. Ah, it's just demonic. And I, although I think all those have, a, have an element of truth to them, um, I don't want us to just, as, as Christians, we should have an explanation for why we believe what we believe and not just uh, discount something the world is, if my theory is correct, um, or even if it's not, and UFOs are still being cited and being seen, um, people are going to want a real answer to something that they see as being real. And so if we just discount that, um, in my view, we're just going to uh, discount the idea of the gospel and of biblical authority in their head. And that that is not what we want for uh, lost souls out there. But there's also crazies out there, definitely. Um, so I don't want that to be lost here. There are definitely people that make up stuff just for their own fame or fortune or attention. Um, although I think that some of them are on purpose and it's kind of like a government psyop, but we can tinfoil that later. Um, we don't need to necessarily find all the answers. I just want us to not, again, I'm, I'm being repetitive here, not discount it. Healthy curiosity, using the Bible as our as our um, guardrails and and guide. So to summarize that, I was trying to think how can how can I summarize this into one you know succinct sentence or two, um, and I still don't know if I did that, but this is what I came up with: is our biblical worldview should explain the world and not let the world define our biblical worldview, um, and that's just as simple as I can say it. We should always define our view of the world through the Bible because that's what God has given us. And if he's the ultimate authority, that's what we should use. Okay, so I've said a lot. I've been going for over an hour here. Um, I was trying to be in under an hour, but that just didn't work. Um, some of it I said is true. Some of it maybe not so much. But to wrap it all up, I want to encourage everyone with just a few things here. Um, as Christians, we believe the Bible, right? And it teaches that our world is very spiritual. The world is more than just our five senses, um, which should be no surprise to us at all because God is spiritual. He's the one that created us and created the world. Why wouldn't it be spiritual to you? We are created as spiritual beings and have a physical body but an eternal soul. So we're spiritual as well. Um, Ephesians 6.12 uh, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, and I think it's no coincidence that immediately following, or immediately before, um, yeah, immediately after this verse, Paul goes into the um, armor of God, like the, the uh, belt of truth gospel, the shoes of gospel, and the shield of faith, all that. 
and I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I think he's telling us we need to have these different things so that we can accurately interpret these things that are coming at us and that the world is, is spiritual. Um, but it disappoints me sometimes, right, when I talk to other believers uh, about some of this. And I know I, I've seen and read some things that are actually kind of crazy and weird. But people look at me like <laughs> I'm crazy, right? And it's just like, well, you believe in a spiritual God and that God created this world and, and us. Like, why, why is it so hard to believe? And I think it's just people are a product of their environment. We were not, until recently, with sci-fi uh, entertainment, this, this stuff was more uh, of a taboo subject, right? Um, UFOs and aliens are, are still somewhat of a taboo thing, um, at least in the Christian world. So I encourage you to, to not respond like that and to challenge uh, people's ideas on some of this using um, the Bible and offering a, a biblical explanation. We don't have to have all the answers, but we need to have an explanation or at least our best efforts using using scripture um, to, to reach those that were lost. I mentioned earlier the uh, Las Vegas uh, sighting of a UFO here the other day and I was um, I saw on, on YouTube uh, Pat McAfee who, who used to be a punter for the Colts the Indianapolis Colts who then retired and now is, uh, he runs a live show on YouTube and a podcast talking about sports and other stuff and um, What's that? He is actually really funny. And so his show, they had a little little segment on on this uh, UFO thing. I was like, no, I'll just watch that. It was like 12 minutes or something. And they're talking about this and kind of having fun with it, saying that, you know, when the aliens come, uh, you know, we'll do football practice with them or doing the Oklahoma drill uh, against the aliens and there'll be no match for A.J. Hawk and all these other, like, famous football players. And kind of we're having fun. Uh, being silly with it. But one thing that he mentioned that kind of stuck out to me was you know, he talked about when he goes outside, he looks up at the stars and the moon and just has so much wonder and about what's out there. And I think that just goes to show that people are looking for answers when it comes to this kind of thing. And, and it's our job to, to give them um, an answer with the Word of God. So uh, I just want to close with... Um, a reminder of First Peter 3, I don't have it up here, but it talks about always being prepared to give a defense for the hope uh, that is in us and give a reason for that. And the, the more that we can explain in a biblical sense or in a biblical perspective, perhaps the more souls that can come uh, to know the Lord. So I uh, just want to leave you with that. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this group of people, Lord, and for this time. Uh, that we can devote to sitting down and uh, looking into your word. Lord, we, we need you in this in this world. There is a lot against us, a lot against you. And so I ask that you give us uh, a readiness and a willingness to uh, pursue your word, pursue your righteousness, so that we're ready to, to take on those fiery uh, darts of the enemy and uh, the deceptions that are out there, Lord. May we not... Uh, lose sight of you as our ultimate authority and the Bible that you've given us, your word. And may we always use that as our first line of defense in, uh, in reaching uh, the lost of this world for you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.